This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. Now, this week is going to be just a little bit different. You might have noticed that this episode is quite a bit longer than usual, and there's a very good reason for that. Our special guest today is New York Times best-selling author, Sarah McLean, and she is here to talk about this week's topic with us and how it all links up to her new book, Bombshell. Now, I had so much fun talking to Sarah, and today we go into the history in a way that's a little bit more relaxed, a little less scripted than you're used to, uh, but I hope you agree that it's fun. <laughs> I thought it was fun. Uh, and of course, we also talk a little bit about how 19th century history is relevant to politics today, and since we're both historical romance authors, of course, we talk about research and misconceptions about historical accuracy, or lack thereof, in historical romance. It's a longer conversation, but I hope you enjoy it. If you do, let us know, and we'll do more interviews in the future as well. But before we get to Sarah, I need to fill you in on the 40 elephants. No, this did not suddenly become a wildlife show. The 40 Thieves, otherwise known as the 40 Elephants, were a generation-spanning all-female crime syndicate based in South London, operating from at least the 1870s up until the 1950s. Now, today, they are best remembered for their activity in the 1920s. To set the scene, it was just like Peaky Blinders, except there were 70 of them, and they were all women. Of course, they weren't the first women to misbehave. During the English Civil War, Lady Catherine Ferrers turned to highway robbery, terrorizing Hertfordshire while dressed as a man. That's right, ladies could be criminals too. And today, she is a legendary figure known as the Wicked Lady, and the 1945 film of the same title is based on her life. But Lady Catherine wasn't as unusual as you might expect. London had been producing notorious female criminals such as cross-dressing pimp Moll Cutpurse and actress and thief Mary Motors for hundreds of years. From medieval times, certain London neighborhoods had been linked inextricably to criminality. This was more than an area just getting stuck with a bad name. Now, if you remember episode 10, we were talking about how, in an attempt to restrict sex work to a single borough across the river, Southwark became medieval London's red light district by royal decree under control of the Bishop of Winchester. The area around the Bishop's Palace, known as the Liberty of the Clink, retained its status as a bastard sanctuary into the 18th century. But what does that mean, exactly? Well, if any of you have read my series, The Southwark Saga, some of this might sound a little familiar. In its capacity as a bastard sanctuary, Southwark became a kind of safe haven for criminals. It wasn't just a bad neighborhood. It was where most of them lived. 
and people on the wrong side of the law became families on the wrong side of the law, and before you know it, you have generations of people in poverty with few legitimate options who have never known another way to live. Now, the 40 thieves were mainly the female relatives and associates of the male elephant and castle gang, and were themselves often referred to as the 40 elephants. The Elephant and Castle Gang were originally thieves and fences operating out of the Elephant and Castle Tavern, which sat about a mile south of the Bishop's Palace. The tavern got its name from the picture on its sign of, you guessed it, an elephant and castle left over from its previous life as a blacksmith's. Still not making any sense? Okay. The Worshipful Company of Cutlers is a trade guild for makers of implements with a cutting edge, from swords to scalpels to razors, all kinds of things like that, and they had a coat of arms featuring da 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 an elephant with a castle on its back. The area surrounding the tavern became known as Elephant and Castle, and the tube station is still marked by a statue of, you guessed it, again, an elephant with a castle on its back. Now, I know that's kind of hard to picture, right? So we're going to go ahead and put a picture of that up on our Instagram at Dirty Sexy History. The 40s would draw associates from around the world and they would operate across London, but their links to this area and its criminal heritage were strong. Initially drawn into crime by their male relatives and lovers, these women, requiring more reliable allies, started to band together into their own gang to protect their own interests. It seems to have been in the 1890s under their first queen, or what they called their leader, Mary Polly Carr, that the women's main source of income, shoplifting, became more organized. They planned their own jobs and hired the men to provide physical backup. The 40s were often formidable fighters themselves, employing hat pins and razors hidden in corsages. Their second queen, Minnie Duggan, even sought to end a rival's good looks with a can opener. But it was their reliance on their wits rather than the use of force which came to set them apart from many other criminals in the capital. By the era of the 40 thieves, capital punishment was no longer a sentence that thieves had to fear, and Britain had recently dispensed with the practice of transporting criminals to distant colonies. The 40s were willing to risk occasional prison sentences in exchange for a more glamorous, exciting, and comfortable life while they were on the outside. In 1896, the 40s queen, Mary Carr at that point, a striking artist model famous for her swan-like neck, stood trial for kidnapping, dressed in a splendid black velvet cloak trimmed with fur over a black silk dress, her head adorned by a broad-brimmed Rembrandt hat boasting five ostrich feathers, and she also wore seven diamond rings on her fingers. When sentenced to three years of hard labor, she bowed theatrically and thanked the judge. Costume and performance were obviously prized commodities. In fact, several 40s, such as Clara Kneebone, were actresses as well as thieves. Shoplifting was a common entry into crime, becoming more elaborate to fund the lifestyle. Young girls often started by shoplifting clothing out of necessity or even shame. In the Edwardian period, more consumer goods and cosmetics were becoming available, and glamour was almost within reach for poor girls who didn't mind taking it. 
However, stolen goods were not typically worn by the thieves, but sold and new clothes bought with the profits. Shoplifting expeditions to the more upmarket West End often involved imitating the dress and manners of supposed social superiors, or putting on the posh. Sometimes the 40s even pretended to be elves. I know that sounds strange, but I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> After Annie Pratt and Edith Brown were caught shoplifting in 1894, 80 parcels of already wrapped and previously stolen Christmas presents were found at their home. Another key aspect of shoplifting was their specially modified garments, which could hold seemingly impossible quantities of stolen merchandise. The volume of ordinary ladies' skirts and petticoats helped to disguise extra pockets and compartments. The extent to which these garments expanded as the pockets were filled contributed to the gang sometimes being called the 40 elephants for the size of their skirts rather than the 40 thieves. They were, of course, also, you know, mainly from elephant. <laughs> now, although many young girls were drawn into crime by men, preying on male weakness was an important weapon in their arsenal. Many scores were variations on the badger game, essentially getting wealthy men into compromising positions that they would later pay to escape quietly. Mary Carr and her gang would lure men into accompanying them by playing the damsel in distress before turning on their would-be saviors before witnesses and extorting hush money from them. In 1906, Fair Ellen Sheen beguiled a wealthy spice merchant named Charles Steng before drugging his champagne and emptying his safe of valuables. As today, the authorities love to paint protesters in the worst light, and it was no different during the suffragette movement when women demonstrated en masse for the right to vote. Any violence, property damage, or theft which takes place during these times of heightened tension is presented as proof of the less-than-pure motives of the protesters, regardless of who starts it or why. In reality, of course, protesters have a variety of motivations for their involvement and react to the authorities' responses in different ways. So it might not surprise you to hear that, of course, some of the 40s were part of that suffragette movement. The 40s were hardened criminals, already willing to use any means at their disposal to improve their lives. It's hard to see any of them feeling reticent to use the chaos as an opportunity for profit, but it is equally hard to doubt the sincerity of their desire for greater equality for women. What's more, they had already made the choice all the suffragettes came to have to make. The choice to risk violence, imprisonment, or maybe even death for just the chance of being rewarded with a better life however brief. Annie Burnup and Ada Johnson, both born MacDonald, joined the suffragette movement in 1908. Annie was arrested for disorderly conduct, went on a hunger strike, was released to recover her strength, then she was rearrested for hitting a cop with a placard. I think she meant it. At their peak, under Alice Diamond during the interwar years, the 40s stole systematically from stores and warehouses in London and beyond, dropping hoisted goods into waiting cars or vans. Stolen merchandise was also sold abroad whenever possible. The organization was hierarchical, disciplined, and it held dues which they used to provide bail. They also provided for the families of incarcerated members, and they demanded tribute from other thieves. It was, in short, a modern crime family. 
Now, if you'd like to read more about the 40 elephants, we recommend checking out Brian McDonald's fantastic book, Alice Diamond and the 40 Elephants, Britain's first female crime syndicate. Now, me and Sarah McLean both read it, and now we are going to talk about that for uh, just a little bit. Without further ado, here is my discussion with Sarah. All right, everybody, I have legendary historical romance author Sarah McLean with me today to talk about The 40 Elephants, a notorious female gang um, that was mostly active in London throughout the 19th and the early 20th centuries. So Sarah's latest book, Bombshell, also features a kind of underground girl gang, the Hells Bells, who transgress societal norms to mete out justice to men taking advantage of vulnerable women and children. Guys, this book is incredibly satisfying. So let's start at the beginning. Welcome, Sarah. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, I'm so excited. Longtime listener. I mean, can you be a longtime listener? Yes, I've listened from the first episode. So how about that? I, I think that counts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're sure glad to hear it. That's awesome. And we are longtime readers and huge fans of yours. Now, I was so excited to hear um, that, that you had gotten into researching the 40 elephants for this mm -hmm. new series of yours. So what can you tell me about the 40 elephants? Well, yeah, the 40 elephants, I, I feel like they were, well, now that I've written a book that's loosely based on them, I feel like I see them everywhere. But it feels like Twitter, the internet was the right place for the 40 elephants to have a resurgence because as you spend so much time talking about, there's so much history that we haven't been told, that we haven't talked about. And a few years ago, I stumbled upon a Twitter thread about the 40 Elephants Gang. Um, and that was right around the same time that I was writing a different romance series called The Bare Knuckle Bastards, which was about um, smugglers, a, a true crime syndicate, you know, of smugglers, um, mainly men in Covent Garden. And so I started reading Brian McDonald's The Gang Gangs of London's uh, let me say that again. I started reading Brian McDonald's The Gangs of London, which covers, you know, the whole, the entire world of London crime syndicates. Um, and there's a tiny little piece about the 40 elephants, the female side of the Elephant and Castle Gang, which was one of the largest kind of um, shoplifting. Um, they ran, they were bookmakers. They kind of did lot. They, the, the Elephant and Castle Gang sort of ran the south, south bank of London um, and roughed things up and they had a women's side and they were called the 40 elephants run by queens literally that's what they were called the heads of uh, the heads of the 40 elephants were called the queen um, and the most notorious of whom was a woman named Alice Diamond, who uh, did a lot of great crime, including falsifying papers to get work in a munitions factory so she could ostensibly steal a bunch of weapons um, <laughs> and, and do crime. Um, but I started to get really fascinated because they were, they still, re they remain the largest shoplifting uh, ring in the history of Britain. And they were entirely peopled by women and they lasted from about the 1880s, the late 1880s to the 1960s. I mean, they had staying powder, power. The final, the last of the uh, queens of the, of the um, 40 elephants died in the early 90s and was buried in a stolen dress, a dress she'd stolen from the Herods. 
as she would have wanted. <laughs> Which feels per- like, yes, okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, go big or go home. If you're going to steal a dress, it's got to be Harrods, right? I should say that we, uh, we do not uh, condone stealing. No, we don't support. <laughs> don't steal dresses from Harrods. <laughs> but, uh, but in that case, for sure, it's incredible. That makes me think of, uh, you know, Bella Lugosi played Dracula. He was famously buried in his Dracula costume. It, Perfect. Uh, you think of that. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. If you have spent your whole, I mean, shoplifting is a really interesting, these the shoplifting rings, they, they were remarkable. The, the level of um, organization required and skill required to run a massive shoplifting ring is pretty great. Like at one point, um, these, I mean, these were women who wanted to dress. They, they were obsessed with fashion. They dressed, they would steal clothing, silks and perfumes and cosmetics and furs and leather goods, um, hide them inside their voluminous Victorian skirts. Thank goodness for the bustle. Um, and they, they had specialty gowns made that had interior pockets that could both hold massive amounts of, of goods and then make it easy to offload those goods. So they would say, walk in the front door of Selfridges, um, in London and then fill their pockets with, you know, whatever they could get their hands on from the, from the department store and then go out the side door where they would be met by multiple other women who were all dressed in these voluminous skirts and offload all of their items so quickly that by the time security got out the door behind them, um, they no longer had the goods. Everything had been gone, had, had been taken off by someone else that passed along the, the, the line. And what's really fascinating is that they would then take those high-end, very valuable goods, fence them, take the money, and then buy themselves legitimate high fashion, which right. is tremendously cool. <laughs> Again, we don't recommend yeah, please this don't as, a, as a career choice um, <laughs> because we know about them because they were caught. I, I feel like we have to say that. We have always. to say that. <laughs> we know about them because they were caught, yeah. And uh, on that note, of course, uh, as you mentioned, their, their first kind of mentions uh, in the newspapers were kind of mainly in the 1880s and 1870s. Although, um, now the author of this incredible book that we, we've just been talking about as well, um, now, he mentioned that there was a possibility that they had actually started as early as the 1700s. Yes. Sort of, yeah, the, the uh, kind of end of the Georgian period. Well, I know you're talking about more of this without me. So, yeah, there's, there is a long history, a long and venerable history of women um, doing crime. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Think, you know, one of what, what's so fascinating to me, so my, I set my books uh, in the um, early Victorian era, and one of the things that the history of the early Victorian era is really fascinating for lots of reasons, but one of the things I think is most interesting is how putting a queen on the throne actually served to, in many ways, limit freedoms for women um, because of fear from society and patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I think is really fascinating is when a number of the, the 40s were brought up on charges and brought before the magistrate, there are quotes um, of them saying things like, people don't believe that women can have power. And so we, we just use your, the, we use the perception of women in order to get ours in order to, to 
to gain more power. Um, So the idea being women were too meek to be followed or approached in a department store, or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if they were quiet on the, on the edges of the room, they wouldn't be bothered because you wouldn't want to upset a delicate lady sensibility. And they knew how to use that perception to mm-hmm. do crime. Yeah. <laughs> burn I mean, it all down, eat the rich. <laughs> like, you know, kind of, can you blame them? So, well, you know, a lot of people uh, seem to think that you do, you have this, uh, this very kind of conservative Victorian period, which, yeah. which sounds like it was very much a backlash to, of course, Victoria coming to power, as you mentioned in the books. Right. But then, you know, people kind of assume, you know, especially if you're not as, as obsessed with history as you and me are, that, you know, kind of the further back you go, it must just get progressively more conservative. More, and, and it's not was case. not at all. Victorian, no. Victorian England was far more conservative than, say, Regency England, which is the right. other era. I mean, I'm a romance novelist, so... We have two eras, it's Regency and Victorian, and nothing else exists. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, exactly. Maybe we have some medievals thrown in so someone can get wrapped in a, in a kilt in the Scottish Highlands, but that's, that's it. Don't, you know, we don't have very much in our, in our pool. Um, no, but honestly, the, the, um, the Regency was not at all like that. I mean, the oh. Prince Regent, first of all, was absolute, absolute scoundrel. Yeah, he's um, nightmares. <laughs> I mean, gross and in so many ways gross, but also very free with, mm-hmm. you know, his perception of how the world should work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, young women in the early Regency were dampening. They're part of the reason why um, Empire, Empire Wastes existed was so, or not existed, but uh, young women liked that they had a, a narrower silhouette and they would dampen their petticoats so that when they walked around, um, the damp fabric would sh- would stick to their body parts, right? So right. People and could that, um, see them. That particular type of muslin that they used to use, they don't even make it anymore. People have forgotten how to make it. Um, it was so paper thin; it was actually transparent in the right light. So, like, depending Perfect. on uh, kind of how much underwear you are wearing or not, it could be kind of more or less daring. And yeah. of course, people think like, "Oh, women in the past didn't think like that," but of course they did. You know, Obviously, I mean, change. We didn't get brain transplants in the last right? hundred years, and you know, I mean, hundred years isn't really a long time, actually, in the grand scheme of things. I think it really is interesting how difficult it is for people to wrap their heads around how recent mm-hmm. the Victorian era is. Right. It wasn't wasn't that long ago. And I do think partially, I mean, it's technology, right? It's, well, they didn't have electricity and they didn't have cars and they didn't have, you know, I don't know, they wore bustles. (laughs) We don't do that stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, I do think that there is, it wasn't that long ago. And I think that um, I've said this a lot, especially recently, there's been a lot of discussion in historical romance space about what is historically accurate? What isn't historically accurate? What do we, what should we be expecting from historical romances? What is the role of the genre? That kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, one of the things I've been saying, it feels like ad nauseum, ad nauseum I've been saying, um, it, I've never in 12 years had an idea for a historical novel or a plot point in historical romance that I couldn't find evidence of in history. Yeah. Yeah. And then the the more you dig, you know, the crazier the history gets, you know, like a lot of the things that we come up with, you know, not only is there precedent, but it was way worse, you know? Yeah. Uh, I I mean, I had to dial, I mean, I'm not writing my, my girl gang in, 
in Hell's Bells is not, they don't, they're not a shoplifting ring. No. Um, but I have used, I certainly have marked up a lot of things that I, I would like to kind of tuck into the books over the course of the series. Mm-hmm. And I have dialed back oh my God. a number yeah. of things that these women happily were doing. Oh, yes. And, you know, uh, of course, I, I love the women in your book so much. You know, they all have these kind of these different skills, you know, that they're they're really kind of employing for good. But there is this real kind of sense of like mayhem and kind of chaos about it. Yeah. I love that. And it's so brave. Um, now, one thing that I wanted to point out, let's see. Now, just for, for people who, you know, of course, maybe they haven't read the book yet or maybe they're not familiar with the 40 elephants, but just draw that parallel here. Um, so one thing that the 40 elephants have in common uh, with the women in your series um, is that these are again, you know, kind of these women transgressing these societal norms, right? Mm-hmm. They're kind of rejecting that uh, that kind of place that they're supposed to have that subservience to men and kind of the establishment as a whole. Now, you know, we've just been talking about, you know, how women don't super change, you know, your whole brain just get <laughs> transplanted, right? So of course, this is a time period where they're not going to have, you know, like, whether it's the 40 elephants in the 1920s, or whether it's your characters, you know, in the Victorian period, they're not necessarily going to have the same kind of rights that we do today. So right. why do you think that, you know, these people at the time felt the need to transgress those expectations in that way? I mean, doesn't it feel a little bit like it's similar to now in that everyone was probably really angry. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> I, I really, so um, yeah, we didn't have brain, we haven't had brain transplants. So think about how you feel now. I mean, literally today, how I feel about the law in Texas yes. and the hot rage that I feel as a woman who is not in Texas, I'm not in Texas. Thank you. know, Thankfully I'm not right now today having to deal with that law but the hot rage that i feel about that law and the way that it is impacting the bodies of women particularly women of color and queer women and um low-income women and immigrant women that sort of fury that i have imagine living at a time when all the laws were like that Mm -hmm. and also you couldn't vote there was no recourse right. at all. You do. I mean, you have to find, I guess, a man to who's cool to vote for you. I don't. I mean, <laughs> I mean, truthfully, that is how it worked, right? I mean, we suffrage happened because men voted for it in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Although I have a lot of thoughts about that too. But um, that's probably another episode. <laughs> um, but I think that the I think. Uh, throughout history there are document throughout history we have documented experiences of people who are in the margins fighting Mm -hmm. hitting their limit and -hmm. at some point we all hit our limit and I think that these women um what I admire and and I know I mean fine it's a crime ring I'm not supposed to admire them but what I admire is that these are, this is a group of women who was born, you know, where I'm an American and um, I think it's often very difficult for Americans to understand just how impossible it was to cross class lines Mm -hmm. in the United Kingdom 
even still today, right? Like class is a huge issue in the UK in a way that it is less so here. Right, right. Um, You have that kind of generational poverty, like, like with, in the, in the case of like the 40 elephants, you have, uh, you know, you have people kind of coming from the South Bank, coming from the Southern area and, uh, you know, their families have been in poverty, poverty for centuries. Right. So what options do they have? So in, in this case, it's very much, you know, kind of like women using the tools available to them, you know? Yes. It's sort of, there are these very low expectations and it's the way that, these women decided to take those low expectations and use them as power. Yeah. Yeah. Now um, that's, that's funny that you mentioned that. I was also thinking about, you know, as, as you talked about when they're doing the shoplifting and they're, they're taking advantage of, you know, like having the, the huge skirts that they can kind of hide things yeah. in. Thanks. Or, it has pockets. <laughs> yes. Anything with pockets. Yeah. Or that, that perception of shopkeepers like, Oh, well the women are weak, uh, sort of meek and we're going to, um, uh, sort of like leave them alone. So like, yep. <laughs> meanwhile, they're filling their pockets with perfume, you know? Um, so they have that, they have that going for them. But also with that kind of perception of invisibility, I thought it was very interesting that um, several of the 40 elephants actually sought uh, employment as housemaids. Yep. So they could kind of get into these, you know, very nice houses and then kind of rob the owners blind, right? Sure. And there now, are great examples of that, of, yes. you know, how, of getting a job as a housemaid and then go- going to a jeweler and convincing the jeweler to bring the jewels to the house to meet the, I mean, fascinating heists going on. Oh my on gosh. There. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's like the, the ultimate prequel to Ocean's Eleven. It's wild. Yeah. Um, now, of course, they're as, as housemaids, as lower class people and as women, they're doubly invisible because like mm. these household servants are not supposed to be seen. Right. So, um, you know, you don't even want to be seen as this kind of servant because so many of them, like you mentioned, you know, in your book, so many of them are, are abused or even assaulted like Caleb's sister, you know? Mm-hmm. So do you think that there's maybe like a little bit of a kind of a sense of justice in there? Or do you think it's just an opportunity that's kind of too good to pass up? Oh, I mean, I think it's, you know, the question is always, is it cognitive, the sense of justice at the very beginning? I don't know, maybe not. Maybe it is kind of, well... I grew up with nothing and here I am and there is there are the jewels and that's you know that's one way of doing it but I also think for many of these women it seems like they knew what they were up to and um and I think there is such a gross injustice in the circumstances of birth for the at least the early portion of the early part of the 40 elephants time um you know these are not this is not a culture that had, um, a, it wasn't a welfare state at the time. It didn't have supports built in. Schools weren't open to a lot of these children. These families couldn't afford any benefits for their children. And so it was a matter of survival. I mean, how do we survive? We, we have to do crime to eat. Yeah, and um, it was the reality for a lot of people, you know, for a very long time. Right. And that's what happens when you build a society um, that is predicated on, you know, the rich remaining rich and the poor remaining servants. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, of course, this is not the ideal situation. And, you know, when, especially like in historical romance, when people like to kind of imagine themselves in the past, you know, so many people, you know, kind of wish that they were aristocrats and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, a little bit of wish fulfillment, whatever. But one thing that I keep coming back to is, uh, of course, we've talked about her before on the podcast, but the housemaid Hannah Colwick, 
Uh, she was in our kind of BDSM episode, which is, mm -hmm. you know, again, a story for another day. But um, <laughs> now she actually had the chance to become a lady. You know, she yeah. actually secretly married a gentleman mm -hmm. and she turned it down. So, you know, she, she was secretly married to him, but she actually found more freedom as, as a lower class person in service. Yes. So, you know, there's, there's kind of something to be said for either way. Yeah. I mean, I, again, this is one of those moments where... I struggle a lot with the way that we as modern readers and consumers of, of information put our expectations on women and other people in the past. Mm -hmm. Because I think now about my life and how I am very fulfilled by, I'm very lucky that I have a job that I find really fulfilling and I'm very fulfilled by lots of things outside of my home, right? I don't need to have, I'm, you know, I don't need to be fully 100% domestic mm -hmm. in order to survive. Um, and I think that often when we talk about women in the Victorian era and before, we often think, oh, well, they were just, that was their, that was what they wanted. They wanted to just sit at home all day and do needlepoint. Um, and that's not to say that there, maybe there were a number of people who wanted to sit at home all day and do needlepoint. But I think that you would probably find that, there are at least an equal number of women who would have preferred to work or, you know, study or uh, create or create or give back or, you know, have some sort of identity outside of the home. That's rich. That's happening at a high level where there's a lot of privilege, where there's established money, where they don't have to feed themselves. Mm -hmm. But when you start to move down the, the, the class system, by the time you get to poor or working class, even merchant class women, these women have to work. They yeah. have to. Because people are always surprised by that. They have to eat. Mm -hmm. They have to eat. Their families have to eat. Mm -hmm. These women did work. They took in work. They they left the home to work. They were they ran shops and garden stalls and mm -hmm. um, you know, they were seamstresses and you know, butchers and bakers. I mean, they did the work that kept a city, in the case of London, functioning. Yes, and that's absolutely right. And, you know, this, uh, this idea that so many people have of, uh, of the past kind of being a time of, you know, like all women are domestic, like all women are housewives, and, you know, they're kind of like stuck to the stove and they're cooking all day, you know. Right. And this is a very kind of 50s fantasy. Because as you mentioned, you know, like if you're kind of below a certain class, as you say, you have to work. A lot of times that is out of the house. It's all different kinds of work. Women had professions. Some owned businesses. Some were brewers. All different kinds of things like that. Um, and one thing that I find really, really interesting that I'd love to go into further in another podcast is uh, as how that the evidence of that, you can kind of find it through the food. So in the, in the kind of Victorian period, you know, like in the, the, the early days of the 40 elephants and, you know, when you're definitely writing, um, there were uh, a number of kind of like fast food stalls around London, you know, in, in mm -hmm. Hyde Park, they had, they had a cart that sold, you know, like coffee and tea and sausage rolls. It's like a mm -hmm. Starbucks in like the 1880s. It's incredible. Yes. It was the same kind of thing. Um, and, you know, people don't believe you, <laughs> but, you know, of course, in some of these houses too, some of these poorer houses, you know, not all of them have kitchens, not all of them have stoves, not everybody has time to cook. So, you know, a lot of people, a lot of these working women are also, you know, kind of getting the equivalent of takeout, you know, they're going to the right. pub, they're going to the Well, paper. there's also a birth control problem too. In and there's early... that too. Yes. I mean, yeah. not that women, I mean, we did this on our, uh, I have a podcast called Faded Mates and we did an episode about bodily autonomy and birth control um, yes. in romance, but, you know, 
obviously not to the level of history that that you would but there's um uh but there's a major birth control problem in that if you get pregnant you have to figure out a way to not be pregnant or Mm -hmm. then you have a child and another mouth to feed yeah and you have to figure out how to deal with that exactly now that actually leads really nicely to my next question now you know i'm obsessed with historical contraception it's it's my whole thing i know i know (laughs) i love it so um of course uh in in bombshell you know cecily uh has decided that she doesn't want to have children she has an iud yeah I was going to ask you about that. She tells Caleb that she's taken, you know, kind of measures to prevent that. Yeah. And when I read that, I was like, yes. So I had to ask you all. She's about- not actually even my first heroine who has an IUD. Grace in Daring and the Duke has an IUD too. That's fantastic. Now, um, I've read about um, IUDs basically in like ninth century Persia, but I don't yeah. actually know a lot about them in the Victorian period. Well, they're not tremendously different. They're silver. I mean, and I, there is a big question as to whether or not they worked. I mean, they were, whether or not they were extremely, you, you know, functional, but in, of course, in my world, they work. Of they're hundred percent effective. Yes. Perfect. <laughs> like all birth control should be. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Even now. Um, so, but there, there were charms that were made of silver or bronze metal mm-hmm. charms that would be literally inserted. A midwife would insert them and which is a great, I mean, again, a great tool, um, and then on top of it, there were, there, there were other ways for you to take, uh, there have always been ways to take care of unwanted mm-hmm. pregnancy. Um, so in my case, I really like the use of, of the IUD. I don't think we use enough, you, we talk about it enough in historicals. I really hate the French letter. Like I hate the whole like hard condom that has to be soaked up. Yeah. So no. you have to figure <laughs> out other ways. And you know, again, in romance, I get to have a little bit of liberty when it comes to STIs. Um, of course. You know. of course. So. <laughs> and that's absolutely fine. Yeah, now, um, I could see why, you know, historical IUDs, you know, I mean, like any kind of, you would think that any kind of like obstruction would probably work, you know, like whether it's, you know, copper. Sure, like but it could or, like, be very damaging. I have read about them as being silver and that does feel like it could infect in some way. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's always a risk. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of preferable to the alternative, you know, like you mentioned, you know, kind of, kind of early condoms. Condoms at this point, they're not quite vulcanized rubber. They're almost there, but they're not very nice, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, Have you uh, done a Goodyear episode? You know that, is it, is it Goodyear that was the first condom maker? Oh, uh, we've talked about Dorex in London. Um, they they sort of started um, actually kind of in the late Victorian period, you know, making you know that kind of vulcanized rubber. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm sorry, they, I cut you off. About no, no, you're fine. Historical condoms, but I'm fascinated by the fact. Really, really into historical condoms, but um, now towards the end of the. the the Victorian period, one method of contraception that was really, really popular, of course, um, was was drinking penny royal tea, you know, as yeah. Kurt Cobain tells us, and he's absolutely right. Um, but penny royal tea now, I mean, it was it was effective, although it's very difficult to use because it's difficult to get the dosage right. And dosing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you, you're always going to run the risk of, you know, like kidney or liver failure. Oops, you know? we're dead. <laughs> like, oops. You know, and it was like, is this something that you have to deal with like every month or every couple of months is, you know, I mean, that's terrifying. So I can see I mean, why I, IUD might be preferable. I do also think that one of the, this goes back to just a big, big gaps in history, right? Yeah. Um, part of the reason why we don't know very much about these IUDs is because we don't know very much about these IUDs. I mean, there's uh, people didn't talk about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a matter of 
you went to the, you went to the woman that your mom went to or your sister went to, or the woman down the lane and she did whatever she did to you. Yeah. Um, which is all just terrible because if, if it had gone the other way, if men were able to get pregnant, um, we'd be in a different situation, I think. (laughs) It'd be a bit different. Yeah. And, you know, of course they had all these different options and, uh, and they all have, you know, definitely that degree of danger involved, you know, um, also kind of around the time that you're writing, another thing that was super common was those, uh, those kind of mail order kind of like abortifacients, right? You have these different pills. A lot of times they had things like arsenic and stuff in them, but they were, they were sold in newspapers as laxatives. Yeah. And the only way that you would know what they were for is that they'd have these kind of, you know, (laughs) like like emotional drawings of women like looking out to the sea yeah <laughs> you know it was yeah. like all kind of coded imagery with it and the brands were often like mrs Wright's mm-hmm. lady laxative yeah Everything lady laxative so coded it's so right. coded and, and widow welch's pills and all this stuff you know it's like this is how you have fun when you're yeah married. <laughs> which is i think how they're i think that's what i why i have so much fear and anger now, because I think um, those of us who have a knowledge of what women went through mm-hmm. a mere 100 years ago to do this, mm-hmm. it's, it's such a, it's so rage inducing that we're really, yeah. we're turning back the clock in a lot of ways that at some point, surely the next thing is, you know, no more plan B in Texas. And oh, then right. it is going to be, you know, finding the person who you can trust to do something and it's terrible it is and uh and also you know as as you look into this stuff like we know how terrible it can get and how dangerous those things are Mm -hmm. and how many things people have tried over time you know that of course sometimes would kill them so you just don't you don't want that to happen again in a time period where we know better and we have access to, to better methods of abortion to these different kinds of options for people, because you know that as soon as you try to outlaw it, what we're going to go back to like arsenic pills and penny royalty, you know, like how many women are going to die of like a liver failure, you know? Yeah. Or like kids who are, you know, young women who are, who have heard, Oh, if I Mm -hmm. eat that or, brew that i mean oh it seems nonsensical that we would even be discussing this as a real thing in 2021 but it's wild and we shouldn't you know um but this is this is clearly something that's actually it's affecting people now and yeah um it's revolting but you know i think i think history is is uh it, it lends something to the conversation at the moment you know because of course we have seen what things have been like in the past and all the different times that they tried to outlaw abortion, you know, like exactly how effective that was. Just yeah. of course, you know, uh, in, in England, you know, uh, abortion was legal until I think it was 1809. But then mm-hmm. after that, it doesn't mean that it stopped, you know, like they criminalized it. But, you know, women were, um, and, you know, like people who could get pregnant were just, were forced to try increasingly dangerous things, you know, with kind mm-hmm. of higher stakes. So especially you know, because there was no pharmaceutical, there were no pharmaceuticals. Yeah. It was, I mean, penny royalty worked, but sometimes it didn't. And, and sometimes it didn't. Yeah. And, exactly. Uh, and it's dangerous. And it's, it's just so scary. You don't, yeah, you don't have that kind of uh, pharmaceutical regulation. You know, no, like, but it is interesting. I was actually just talking to my husband about this because I read this article and now I can't remember where I read it uh, because, you know, pandemic brain mm-hmm. um, about how uh, midwifery, was is coming back that the um that the pandemic really helped 
mm-hmm. raise the profile of midwives. Um, oh. because if you didn't want to go to a hospital to have your child, if you had a healthy pregnancy and you were a person who was pregnant and had no concerns generally, um, you could have a midwife come and deliver your child in your home, mm-hmm. which is great. Yeah. Um, and so midwives are, there's a resurgence of midwives and this question of returning, um, the, the body with a uterus to people who have uteruses is a really interesting question that is, uh, it's a, it's a result of the pandemic that isn't necessarily a terrible one. So no, necessarily, not at all. And, and of course, uh, historically speaking, a lot of times midwives would be uh, or were suspected of being the people who were providing this kind of contraceptive knowledge as well. Of course. of course, it's not only helping you through your pregnancies, but, you know, it's kind of helping you through, well, other things that might occur. Yeah, so, this um, is um, interesting. I learned all of that from romance novels. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and people were off, right? I mean, I, that's how I got into history, too. You know, I started oh, yeah. reading them so young, and, and that was what made me love history. Yeah. And of course, um, you know, I went off and I, I got my degree in history because I wanted to write better romance novels, you know? Yeah. And, you know, of, of course, history, you know, ends up you know, kind of taking over. But, you know, I really do think historical research lends so much to them, you know? Um, so I'm glad that you also that you mentioned, uh, you know, the kind of, women's suffrage and all that, and, and that you have strong opinions about that. I think <laughs> absolutely fantastic. So here's, this kind of an odd question. Okay, so we mentioned, of course, that the 40 elephants, they first started appearing in newspapers kind of in the 1870s and the, and the 1880s. Right. Now, these pictures, this, these great caricatures of women with big skirts with like a bolt of fabric on the ground, like tucked yeah, and sticking I mean, out from yeah. underneath <laughs> Their dresses, amazing. Guessing, like, like these days they would have that dress with like a forty-inch TV under it. I mean, like, like something huge, like a wash. Things thing. they could. I mean, truly, it's amazing what they fit under there. It's incredible. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Of course, like when fabric is that expensive, you can't really blame them for trying. But, <laughs> but anyway, point being, so around this kind of time, this also really coincides with, uh, you know, as the, the women's rights kind of movements in the UK and the US are really starting to pick up. You've got the suffragettes, the suffragists, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on. Yeah. Now, of course, people are very, very aware of women, you know, kind of, well, it, it seemed like, you know, kind of suddenly acting up. Of course, there's nothing yeah. about it. They, ne- they didn't care at all about this before. Just, right. They didn't right care then. before. So I'm Which wondering, flipped. you know, the, the kind of focus that they had on these women in the papers. Like, do you, do you think that, you know, like the women just suddenly decided to become career criminals or were they just starting <laughs> to notice what women were doing? <laughs> Um, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I think that, um, like I said, I think it definitely begins young. Mm-hmm. I think we know young, young girls were often tapped to be pickpockets um, because they could move quickly. They had nimble fingers and also uh, they would be treated better ostensibly by the law because, right. you know, young girls. Um so we know that we know that for a lot of them being able to thieve a pocket watch could feed your family for a while. So mm-hmm. there's that. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of feels like smart leadership. <laughs> you know some 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 people s- step forward as leaders in all things and uh it doesn't surprise me that there would be a group of women who 
would say, all right, well, we don't just have to feed our family for a week. How do we do it? And also be able to dress to the nines and go out carousing and party and drink and live the high life. Right. Um, and in the case of these, of this group of women, which was fairly expand, certainly it, it spanned time, but also we're not talking about 10 women. We're talking about a number of women, some, some number of women. Um, we think there are about 70 by name that we can sort of, ta- that Brian McDonald can tag to the 40 elephants, but yeah. surely if there are 70 by name, there's then a whole sc- slew of them who weren't caught. More than that. Yeah. I mean, and I would think probably multiple, you know, multiples of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, the, the idea being, you know, that there, once you could see that as a pathway to living the dream, mm-hmm. if there's no other path, there's no, if there literally is no other pathway that gets you to living the dream that isn't crime, you do crime. Right. And that, um, you know, of course that, that absolutely happened in, in other instances too. And, and that was one of the things that, um, well, you know, I was, I was on that pirate show and we keep discussing kind of the history of pirates. And like, that was how a lot of people originally got kind of into piracy. You know, you have this very rigid class system. You have this generational poverty. People aren't able to get out of it and they're desperate. So, you know, you, you find this opportunity and you take it. And it also feels like there's nothing to stop you. There's no other, there's no moral code around here. Any preacher who comes into town on the South bank at this point and preaches, you know, don't steal, probably didn't grow up on the South Bank. No. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I think that's part of it, right? There's this real sense of anybody who's coming in here and telling us that this is um, not noble or that this is amoral or immoral um, hasn't really spent very much time here because shoplifting is kind of the nicest way that we can make sure we can feed ourselves. Oh, for um, sure. And that's not, just, I'm not trying to make heroes out of these women, but I'm trying to say that this is, you know, we need to understand the mentality that comes with being willing to do six months hard labor mm-hmm. every other year of your life. Right, right? right. And that's because hard labor is what it sounds like. It's not, you know, these these were not prisons that were welcoming or, you know, it wasn't a great, it wasn't a great time to be in prison. Unlike now where it's, you know, really great. That's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> well, yeah, I, mean, never that, ideal, I mean, like it was, it's never been great, but like these prisons, you know, Newgate was no prize. Right. Right. Um, incredibly brutal. And these women knew, they knew what they were in for. Mm-hmm. Um, and they knew what they were putting their children into when they, but what are your choices? Right, right. So if your options are six months hard labor for every 18 months of literally being able to dress in silk and fur and, you know, live, live your best life, maybe you do it. Right. It feels kind of like a, like a risk they're willing to take. Now, but I, um, I think a lot about Alice Diamond, Di- Alice Diamond, the kind of big, the, the big queen, <laughs> the queen right. of all queens, if you will, <laughs> of the 40 elephants. And I think about her falsifying those documents to work at a munitions factory. And I think about why you would do that. Mm -hmm. And that feels like you do that because you have a bone to pick with patriarchy, not because (laughs) you want to wear silk, right? 
right. she had a plan. Right. She and did. You know, I'm so glad that you mentioned that actually, because of course, you know, these aren't, you know, these aren't just kind of uh, like, well, for lack of a better term, they, they aren't just like, like dumb criminals or whatever. Like these are, these are like very, very no. smart women. They're very intelligent. They have all these very, you know, kind of different skills. And there's always more to the story than, you know, people want you to believe, you know, like, yes, it's, it's, there's more to it than like just this person is good or this person is bad. Yeah. So of course, and as we mentioned, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, you, um, you finish. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, they have all these kind of special skills, you know, she falsified these documents, you know, she snuck into this munitions factory. Um, and they, they had all of these different, you know, kind of incredible skills. And of course, your characters have some very interesting skills too. <laughs> now, That's you true. know that I've been dying to ask all about Imogen and her explosives. Yes, because so well, that's all that? historically. So, okay. Um, she, Imogen basically invents the Molotov cocktail, invents, uses the Molotov cocktail and invents chloroform on the page in this book. Right. Um, and I... So the, the premise of this series was very much, you know, I want to write Birds of Prey, but I want to make it historical, right? I want to just, I, part of what I love about historical romance is that I think it is the place in romance where you can do the most fantasy work, mm-hmm. um, where I can, I can set you down on the page and deliver you in the first scene into, or it's not the first scene, but an early scene of the book into a, you know, true tavern brawl where someone gets, you know, chloroformed and there's discussion of a of a Molotov cocktail and then you as reader are are like okay I get it like I'm going to suspend all disbelief this book is just a ride and that's what I really want but from a historical accuracy perspective I want it to be plausible is it guaranteed it happened this way no but is it possible is there a non-zero possibility here yes um so chloroform was actually invented right at the same time it's like the perfect time um uh it was invented by someone in america and someone in germany two years earlier um imogen invents it in the in the book um it sadly when you know every once in a while you look up something that you have been taught by media is true and then you realize historically, you realize the science of it is not quite that. Um, chloroform actually does not knock you out as fast as it seems in television shows, which is very sad. Oh, um, <laughs> well, <that's too> bad. <laughs> I'm sorry to ruin that for everybody listening, but uh, yeah, it's a uh, you know in in TV shows it's like or movies there's it's the handkerchief over the nose and then mm-hmm. boom out. Uh, it actually takes like five to ten minutes. Uh, not in my books. I'm going with with movie accuracy version (laughs) yeah movie science um but she does and so imogen it but imogen makes bathtub gunpowder which Mm -hmm. is a real thing people i my youtube searches my internet searches are not great probably for the fbi but um you can you too can make bathtub gunpowder um also we do not condone making bathtub gunpowder This this episode is going to need like, lots of disclaimers. A lot of warnings, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, she was really fun because uh, explosives, I mean, explosives have been around forever. So, yeah. um, but her instinct for things that go boom are um, is, is unparalleled, I think. Um, oh, and that was partially because like I said, I just wanted the book to be fun. I wanted it to have, I figured if I'm writing this 
if I'm writing a gang, it needs to have the femme fatale and the thief and the pyromaniac <laughs> and the, you know, the one who always has a plan and also the one who is a brewer and can get messages through taverns and the one who owns the place, the literal place and the figurative place where everyone hangs out. Um, and so it ends up being, um, it was just really fun. It was really fun to write essentially a crew, a squad um, that in media for way too long would not have, would either have had one woman in it or would have not had any women in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but now exactly. in my world, it's all women. Yes. And that's fabulous. And um, of course, you know, as we were kind of mentioning at the beginning, we were talking about like how people will sometimes knock historical romance. I mean, especially our books, you know, yeah. for, for like being like too modern or whatever, you know, but um, what, what I was really struck by, you know, reading Bombshell in particular is, you know, how much, you know, very specific, very believable history you have in it. It's very clear that you've really done your homework. And I didn't find it historically inaccurate at all. You know, of course you have, uh, you have that the bit about the chloroform, you know, maybe working a little bit too quickly. <laughs> but, but for example, like this book, I mean, it's, it's more accurate than like your average, average, uh, Georgette Hayer novel, you know, but like people have that, they they have that kind of very, very specific perception that like, oh, well, the past is, is this that I've kind of created in my head. People in the past behave a certain way. They look a certain way. I mean, Mm -hmm. I, I have gotten it since Bombshell came out about, you know, it's so implausible. Women wouldn't act this way, but, but of course they do. Our, our our colleagues who write, who are our colleagues of color who write books mm-hmm. about women of color and um, queer people and mm-hmm. others in history, they get it far worse than oh, I have. Goodness. Where, you know, these people wouldn't have existed. These people would have only had trauma. Seeing them happy is unrealistic. I mean, that, that work is um, much more difficult, I think, than, you know, Absolutely. just taking my having to say, no, people said fuck. That was like a real they word. They said it all the time. People used to swear a lot more. Yeah. And and you have raised an excellent point there. And that's very important. Although I feel like this, this kind of assumption that all of this stuff is inaccurate, it's not based on the real history. It's almost like based on consuming that very specific type of media. Hey, you know? I mean, it's, unfortunately, Georgette Hayer for the, for all she did to make historical romance a genre Mm -hmm. um she is the reason why we are constantly fighting yeah um this this misconception that the 19th century was exclusively white and het and christian Mm -hmm. um that women in history only wanted to do needlepoint and you know talk to other people exactly (laughs) over tea (laughs) right and that was all they ever did and they didn't ever want anything more and you know like if that's your fantasy that's fine but then you know when when you and me are writing books like this like the the kind of thing that we do we're not kind of relying on that that very kind of ingrained tradition of this type of historical romance so we're not we're not picking up on that like where we're getting our material from is from the actual history um, and right. that, that kind of vision of, of the world as it was or as it could have been, um, that is so foreign to people who've kind of, you know, like wholesale bought this kind of beautiful nostalgic fantasy of this kind of sterile, very white, very wealthy kind of past, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that, and as you mentioned, it is, it's kind of a constant fight to say like, 
well, you know, actually these are my sources and that's fine, but I'm, I'm doing something else and that it's not invalid. It's, it's actually true. You know, it's yeah. just every day. And, and as you mentioned, of course, our, our colleagues of color, people writing, you know, um, characters of color, people writing, uh, you know, queer characters, you know, people who live these kind of unusual lives. It is, it is a kind of a fight every day and it's, it's, must be exhausting, you know. I think that one of the things that disappoints me the most about um, this conversation, particularly with historicals, is is that um, there is, seems to be such a desire to see characters suffer. And that is something that for me has always been the realm of genres that are not romance. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, romance has always been about, uh, seeing heroines triumph, seeing marginalized people triumph, um, mm-hmm. seeing happily ever after, happily ever after as a bedrock code for us. Um, and so when we say, well, women wouldn't be able to, you know, just wander around Covent Garden. Well, I mean, maybe not, but I think when we write our books um, and we, we set our characters down in a world that we've created and we write them without trauma um, and without, well, I should say without immediate physical trauma instead of, you know, all my characters have emotional trauma, but that's a different thing. (laughs) (laughs) All my characters could benefit from like several years of therapy, but Mm -hmm. the, um, but we write them without, you know, physical, immediate physical trauma or fear um, in all the ways that we, we traumatize and we, um, we threaten women on, on the page um, throughout literature and all media. When we do it, when we don't do that in romance, we're making, we're saying something. You and I, when we write these books, are saying something about, you know, one of the things that I think about a lot is I'm writing this series and these characters are all very strong on all these heroines have such agency and every woman that I put on the page has agency. Mm -hmm. um, And I lead with that as a concept, as a writer. Um, Because for me, that's, that's my code to my characters and to my readers. Like every woman I put on the page will have agency. Um, In order to do that, a lot of the choice, I spend a lot of time thinking like, how do I throw things in her path that aren't trauma? Right. I don't want, to threaten, I don't want to give them traumatic experiences, but I want to give them challenges that they can overcome. And I think that um, it's okay for us to say that's, that's, that's the history I want to tell. And I think that's wonderful. And it is, it is so refreshing, just incredibly refreshing. That's the best word I can think of for it, you know? Um, And of course you mentioned their personal agency, which is so important. Um, now that is actually just just that alone, like even quite aside from the trauma, that that sense of women having personal agency, that's one of the things that people kind of argue against that like, oh, well, that never happened. But history, yeah, like we've it. been talking about today, it's full of tons of women who had personal agency or found ways yeah. to make that happen, you know? So it, it happens in your books. And of course it, it happened with these, uh, these women involved in the 40 elephants, which I- Yeah, I mean, you take- Exactly. I think, I think the thing about these women that I find so admirable is even if they were not born with agency, you know, they were not gifted agency by society, they were able to find it and claim it and mm-hmm. use it um, and discover power in it. And 
I'm just interested in how people hold power and how they wield it for good. Yeah. I also would really like to know why she wanted to get into that munitions factory, but we'll never know. (laughs) (laughs) It's lost to history. (laughs) That'll that'll be something that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a character can work out. (laughs) Fantastic. So um, what's next for you in the series? What can we look forward to? Uh, the next book is Heartbreaker. It comes out in the summer of 2022. It is Adelaide's story. She is the thief of the crew. Excellent. Um, it's a road trip romance. Um, she's, there is a, a, Adelaide is, I remember when I started writing Bombshell and I wrote a scene where Adelaide gets very angry. And at the end of it, I thought, oh, Adelaide's the Hulk. She, oh. She's like quiet Bruce Banner and then has a wicked sense of you know, justice and you shouldn't make her angry when it comes to that. So it's a really fun story. She's um, matched with a very crusty kind of stiff Duke um, who doesn't understand, (laughs) but he will by the end. (laughs) Adelaide was such a compelling character. Um, I I loved the scene where, you know, of course she, she stands up to that, to that awful man and, you know, they kind of make a bit of a ruckus and I won't, um, I won't give away too much in this. Everybody go ahead and go read Bombshell. It's a fantastic book. Uh, And there is more history in it than you might initially assume. Yes. True of so many historical romances. I think about how much, um, I think one of the sad things about the way the world perceives historicals is that we just make it up as we go along. Yeah. And and I would say my friends, you know, my colleagues, Mm -hmm. we I don't know a single one who phones it in when it comes to no. the history piece. And it would be so much easier for us if we did. <laughs> it would be so much faster. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. Um, the, the trickiest thing is, I mean, just when it comes down to law to, you mm-hmm. know, I wrote a divorce book and I must've, I mean, that was hard. I spent so much time reading about the laws surrounding divorce in the right. 18- it was incredible and of course it depended on you know kind of who you well, were you need an act of parliament involved. yeah oh, lord yeah and of course um, for the lower classes it wasn't that big of a deal no know, enough well they could just sort of wander off too yeah pretty much <laughs> peace yeah <laughs> we're good <laughs> that's the other reason why you d- nobody everybody that that princess fantasy you don't want it i mean mm-hmm. it's just yeah, that that housemaid was right. Never to. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of you know, just get I'm married in secret. Yeah, like you you get the guy, but you kind of still have your freedom, you know. Yeah, and then once you because once you have the title, then you're all wrapped up in mm-hmm. in all that business, no, and you-, you can't. I mean, all I think I think about this about the royal family all the time. I think, gosh, Kate Middleton can never just go have a cheeseburger. And right, could you imagine? Like. Yeah. And even, you know, like, that sounds terrible. No, no, not at all. But like, you know, but if, of course, if she did, you know, like you can only imagine like what the tabloids would say, but then of course, you know, like Meghan Markle, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, she's like human perfection. I unbelievable. Nothing that she does is good enough for anybody, you know, so much criticism. They were here. It's, I mean, I, I'm certain that every day they just thank their lucky stars that they got out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, my goodness, what a mess. Oh, so yeah, 
that that is one of those kind of fantasies that I feel kind of firmly belongs in the historical yeah. category. I mean, I, I fully <laughs> understand it. I fully understand it. You of know, course. sitting in my, you know, walk-up apartment in New York City on month 19 of a pandemic, yeah. I think to myself, like, ooh, it would be great to live in a castle with grounds. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, I could be a princess. Yeah. But, you know, I, when, you, when you really look at, like, kind of the reality of it, you know, um, particularly today or, or even historically, like, what these people mm-hmm. actually got up to, you know, you, you start to be, you know, kind of grateful for that apartment you know (laughs) know, exactly for that peace of mind exactly yeah my goodness anyway gosh we've covered so much ground today and i I had the most fun thank you so much for having me well thank you for coming and thank you for your great podcast i really am it is always a delight i was um i was listening today to the episode about the catacombs of paris um which i so I have a podcast called Faded Mates that comes out on Wednesdays and um, you can all go listen to it. It's about romance novels, but the first season of that podcast is about a very specific romance novel series called Immortals After Dark by Cressley Cole. And the first scene of the book um, is the story opens on a werewolf in uh, in ensorcelled chains um, underneath Paris in the catacombs in a etern- being tortured by eternal fire. All so right. I have a particular love of the catacombs of Paris oh, because of that series. I, I um, honestly would not be surprised if he was down there. I mean, there's a still. lot. To- <laughs> <laughs> well, he's not because right there in chapter one, his faded mate walks by him on uh, the street above where he is chained and he gnaws off his leg to get to her wow oh that's incredible chapter one of book one of the immortals after dark i'm gonna have to read that that sounds great it's pretty it's pretty great (laughs) (laughs) that's incredible so i'm so glad that you mentioned faded mates uh so uh tell our listeners where people can find you yeah well you can find me at faded mates every wednesday um my co-host jen and i deconstruct romance novels we talk about tropes we unpack why romance novels scratch the itch when they do um and we do deep dives on books that we think are really great examples of the genre both now and historically so um that's fun that comes out every wednesday you can also find me on twitter at sarah mclean um but i'm not there as much as i am at instagram which is also at sarah mclean and you can find more about me and my books at sarahmclean.net or wherever you read Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for all that. I mean, I agree. I do think, I think Instagram's more fun than Twitter too. So everybody uh, go check out Sarah's stuff. And uh, if you are at all interested in romance, even if you haven't been a, a romance reader before, uh, we absolutely recommend that you check it out because Sarah's books are legit. They are a uh, dirty, sexy history approved. Thank so, you. Thank you so very much for joining us today. And uh, we hope to see you again soon. Well, that was fun. As Sarah mentioned, you can also catch her on the fabulous podcast, Faded Mates, which is, of course, more focused on the romance side of things. Now, this week, we'd like to thank Sarah for stopping by, and we'd also like to thank, of course, our amazing patrons on Patreon. Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Andy Christopher, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, 
Janine Nieberg, Jessica Miller, Akko Spoot, and Sylvia Van Eyck. Thank you all so very much for keeping our lights on. If you would like to support the show, please check us out on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory. Please rate, review, and subscribe because it really does help us out. As always, you can find us through our website at DirtySexyHistory.com or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram where we will post the photos from this week's show. Dirty Sexy History is an independent podcast and this episode was written by Jessica Kale and Dr. John Jenkins. This week's sources include a few of our very favorite books, Stephen Carver, The 19th Century Underworld, Crime, Controversy, and Corruption. Brian MacDonald, Alice Diamond and the Forty Elephants, Britain's First Female Crime Syndicate. Lucy Moore, The Thieves' Opera, the riveting true story of 18th century London's most notorious and active criminals. And Liza Picard, Victorian London, The Tale of a City, 1840-1870. to 1870. See you next week.